I'd like to carry on from Yenai's theme yesterday of death. And I want to first do a sound check. Somebody told me it wasn't so good, the sound, and I'm st- some are still shaking their heads. So fine for Robert, but there's a, we need a little bit more volume, Virginia, if possible. It's on max. So um, what I suggest, if the people who can't hear, if you see where the, the speakers are pointing in funny directions, um, if you sit in the line of the speaker, testing, testing, see if that's better for you. Is that better like that? Yeah. How about you? Can you hear okay at the back now? You'll be all right. Okay. All right. So the thingy, uh, the um, volume's on max, but if I start to drop my voice, put your hand in the air and I'll speak up. So the title of the talk is Merging in the Deathless. Merging in the Deathless. So as we know, as Dharma practitioners, the reflection on death is to wake us up to what's happening here so we can cultivate what we want to cultivate, what is actually uh, more reliable, sustainable, deepening, and leads onwards more than the normal way we try to lean and get security in what, you know, all the things you've tried to get security in. Thoughts, feelings, perceptions, consciousness, mind states, self-images. In the end, our ability to control that goes. In fact, we never had a real ability to control it, but death makes that obvious. The ability to predict, the ability to avoid, to try and attract towards us what we want, it's all going to go. And if we can hold the kind of unvarnished, unglamorous nature of that which death really confronts us with, then we have a very privileged opportunity really here as practitioners to understand what is it that leads to deathlessness. So the Buddha used this phrase, merging in the deathless, in reference to the five spiritual faculties. And that's what I want to speak about. Um, And what I would love to be able to convey is the sense of these five faculties merging together, balancing together, coming together, deepening together in our practice of shedding the tendency to grasp those things which will only lead us to death. Right? So here I'm not using death just as physical death. It's used in the sense of when we cling to something 
that is bound to decay and disappear, we are subjecting ourselves to death. When I take hold of a mind state and go, yep, yeah, that's it now, got the bliss, I'm here. Right? When we do that, we are binding ourselves, we've taken birth in something. And when we do that, we are bound to go through the process of decay and dying to that because this is not our home. All the training into seeing impermanence is to really get this loud and clear, to wake us up. It says, when these five faculties are developed, they merge in the deathless. It's a kind of organic thing. It's like a, a mandala of qualities woven together that takes us to this knowing, this release, where the mind is no longer leaning on things that bind us to birth and death. So just rather than, oh my goodness, you know, that's a long way off, or I'll never get there, or whatever it is your mind, or I'm nearly there, whatever it is your mind does with it, Let yourself hear that call that brought you here. Actually, all of you, the faith that comes to practice. You might not call it faith, but that's what it is. A faith of some possibility, something that leads onward, something more for me to see. And that faith that knows this possibility. Just dream your way in for a moment to the mind that is released from trying to find anything to lean on. We can't think our way there, but we can kind of uh, sense the call, we could say. If you don't like the language of call, forget it. Don't get too busy with that. But that which, which um, inspires us, actually, to practice. So dream your way in. I invite you to know, to touch, to be called by the mind released from trying to lean on anything. Not trying to make its perch hover and find a little perch of being the best, being the worst having this one, not having that one, having these things around me, not having those things around me, when we stop telling ourselves those stories. What is that, the mind released from trying to find something to lean on? Celebrate. Because that is what we could say Nibbana is, if it's such a thing. It's not an object, it's not a place, it's not somewhere we can get to, but it is realizable in the coming together of these spiritual faculties, these doors to the deathless nature. So what are they? I'll name them, maybe you know them very well. Faith is the first one. Second one is persistence, persistent energy, persistent endeavor. 
Mindfulness is the third. Samadhi is the fourth. And wisdom is the fifth, the discernment. Wisdom and right view is defined as knowing, to being able to discern which pathways lead to happiness and which do not. Which pathways lead onward toward the goal and which do not. That's actually the definition of right view, wisdom. So as I speak and name these different qualities, can you see they cannot exist in isolation? They exist dependent on each other so that there isn't one thing we finally get to lean on and then we've made it. The leaning is released. The heart-mind is released in the merging into deathlessness. These five faculties are innate to us. They may not be well-developed, they may be a bit latent in us, but they can be developed. They are not objects of attention. They are more like modes of operation. Right? Mindfulness is a, is a way of operating. Faith is a mode of operation. Uh, energy, persistence, it's a way of endeavoring, of going about the moment, this activity. Our normal mind is always seeking for an object to lean on. And attention, if you look at your, the mode of operation of attention, attention is a kind of a, is not actually necessarily wise. You know, we say pay attention or cultivate attentiveness on its own. It's not necessarily married with the wisdom. This is where these faculties come together. Attract, uh, attraction. Attention is a way that awareness can contract and sharpen the focus on a particular object. The definition sharpens up. We see something more clearly, right? We're more precise in what we're with. And the other stuff, everything else in the field, goes fuzzy or disappears. It's not important. We get kind of absorbed in this one thing. But this can still be governed, of course, by the grasping mind. Attention itself isn't free of grasping. Attention itself is not necessarily governed by wisdom. When the example is given in the tradition of of a burglar who is very mindful, very attentive, very heedful, we could say, careful as she or he scales the building, steals the objects, puts them in the bag in this archetypal version. Right? What is it that comes together with attention that makes this a part, a factor that leads to deathlessness? This would be right view, wisdom. What shall I pay attention to and how shall I pay attention to it? in a way that leads onward. What are good things to pay attention to and what are not good things to pay attention to? What are good things to pick up in my mind and give my attention to and what are not? And that's a process for many of us of, of, of we can be guided by teachings, but we also have to live a life 
and we can pick up things that don't leave in good, lead us to good places, right? That's also how we learn. It's like, oh, here I am from the most terribly painful to the more mundane, you know, habit of buying a gossip magazine or something that's not ethically bad, but we know after reading that entire newspaper, we feel hungover afterwards or unsatisfied, like we haven't eaten properly or, you know, these kind of gossip magazines. Sometimes I kind of look at them in the newsagent because they, they, they sparkle, don't they? Like there's something there. Probably after three weeks at Guy House, you can't think of anything further at this point. <laughs> You're in a more refined place. Right? But it can also be the refined places. You know, what is it that I'm attending to, even refined things? Do they lead onward? Do they lead toward the goal? Does this lead to less grasping for me? Where does it leave, con- where does it leave my mind when I've put it down? Those, that's wisdom. That's learning cause and effect. That's learning right view again and again and again. And we can get more and more refined with that in our practice. So in the Buddha Dharma, we're not trying to find the one thing to lean on that's good, where you can kind of retire, put your feet up, I've done my work. We're not trying to get to one thing. The merging in the deathless is a coming together of different faculties that support the mind in release. So a little bit about faith. Some people love that word. Some people really have trouble with it, maybe from history. or One way I like to see it is the difference between faith and belief. Belief fills up all the space with dogma. Faith opens up the space to more and more space. Faith is the faith to have our hands empty, actually. Not draw more things in to us. Even, you know, marvellous, precise Buddhist doctrine. Not leaning on that. The faith is, the doctrine is only there for the hands to open out, to release. It's only ever a map, albeit a very precise, quite brilliant map. It's spoken about that faith is reasoned and tested out, as you know, and it's what attracts many people in the Dharma. The Buddha said, come and see for yourself, check it out. We have to, or else it's just a belief. We cannot lean on beliefs. This does not merge in the deathless. Beliefs do not merge in the deathless. But faith does. Faith that lets our hands empty because we get more the taste for not knowing. Not knowing what's going to happen next. Knowing that I can't um, make my home in prediction. (laughs) Predicting my future, your future, my partner's future. That's binding ourselves to death. Not because they're going to die, they will, of course. 
but because I'm binding myself to the changing, unreliable. What happens if I practice faith? And you all are doing that in coming here. Faith, it may be what attracts us in the beginning. It's faith in nice experiences or faith in samadhi or faith in far-out spiritual things. And they all can be beautiful. But in the end, as one of my teachers says, that the faith actually is the trust to say, actually, life's okay. Life's okay. There's less intensity around the particular, even the marvelous spiritual experience or the terrible worldly experience. The intensification around it is what releases. Ah, there's trust. Less mesmerized and enchanted or entranced by the contents of what keeps passing through. Something else is rested back into, and there's trust. Faith in our practice, faith in the Dharma, of having gone through those places where we thought we couldn't bear it, or we thought they were who we were, who we are. You know, the the nasty thought, the scoured out heart, the grieving soul, whatever it is that's been hard for us to bear, that we learn how to handle and come together through those places and out through the other side, or another metaphor, that they can arise and they can be liberated. We can not only widen and soften around some of those places as our practice deepens, they can also start to break up and digest and become liberated. This inspires and deepens the confidence and the faith so that then when we encounter another tricky thing externally or internally or both, the world impinges, someone blames us, accuses us. It's hard, isn't it? Whatever it might be, the faith is there. The faith also to persist, the second factor the faith to persevere. I cannot have faith in the objects themselves. Not everyone's going to love me and probably not everyone's going to hate me. I cannot have faith in that. The Buddha said there is no one ever who was completely right or completely wrong. <laughs> right? There is no one who is 100% praised or 100% blamed. Not him. Absolutely not him. The worldly winds will blow. But the faith in that moment is to persist. I cannot trust the phenomena itself. The winds will keep blowing, hot and cold. Praise and blame. But I, ha- I can have faith in persisting. Persisting, keeping going, keep threading through with mindfulness, with right view, with my attention to my ethics as best I can. I can persist. I can have faith in that. So persistence, 
And maybe you can see how it fits with the faith as well. So I've worded it one way around. The other way around, I don't know where this experience is going. Right? We can see that in the perception of time, our experience unfolds. Pleasant experience unfolds. Maybe our samadhi deepens, it widens, it gets more wholesome and pleasurable. Painful experience unfolds. Someone accuses us of something. There's a process set in motion that will take time. I, it, 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 we're here, we're here through it, we're persisting through it. I don't know where this is going, but I'm here. I don't completely know how this experience is going to unfold, but I'm here. This we can have faith in. Can you sense that? Can you sense that? They're sort of timeless qualities, we could say. And hence, they merge in the deathless. Also, I would like to offer you again, the remind you of the teaching of the four efforts, because it kind of fits in this uh, category of cultivation, cultivating persistence and energy and keeping going. You know, the, the regular cultivations of the four great efforts. Guarding the senses, right? Not having to pick up every Hello magazine that you go past in the newsagent. Right? We guard the senses. We're wise about what we take in through the senses. Restraining the senses, overcoming unwholesome habit, uh, habits. So guarding, <coughs> overcoming when something unhelpful has arisen, because it does, doesn't it? So that we don't act it out. Sometimes we have to exert some effort to not act out the difficult things that are actually arising for us in order to be handled with the spiritual faculties. Right? It takes time sometimes to deepen those resources of wisdom, of mindfulness, of enough samadhi to handle this, enough firmness and presence and steadiness and soothing to handle this very painful, sharp sankara. Developing the beautiful qualities that have already arisen or uh, developing the beautiful qualities that haven't yet arisen. Actually, plugging ourselves in really simple things. You know, I took on a practice on a long retreat here like this, believing that what I was really doing was samadhi practice. And of course, I was, but it's always in a bigger context, right? It doesn't exist on its own. So I took on a practice of... uh, because I saw in my mind, every time I went past the cups by the washing up area, people had left cups hadn't washed them up, even though they're supposed to wash them up, right? And I could see my little nattering, moaning mind, even though I sometimes did that too, but I somehow wanted to leave myself the right to judge the others. Okay, okay, why don't I wash them up, right? Not to try to be good, although it's good, but because this will help me. This will help me develop this part of my mind to release and not have to pick up 
that place that I know really well that does not merge in the deathless. <laughs> it really emerges in death, doesn't it? It takes birth in the righteous one and the whatever it is. Right, okay, this will help me. Yes, and it's lovely for the place. Wonderful. And it's a little effort. It wasn't natural. Some people, that's well-trained, right? It wasn't natural. Or by natural, I mean it wasn't well-conditioned. It wasn't a positive conditioning. And maintaining the fourth effort, maintaining the beautiful things that have arisen. It's different than grasping experience. It's maintaining the beautiful qualities. Like if you have a practice of generosity, don't just do it once. Keep it going. Keep it going. Keep maintaining that receptive giving heart. Right? I have one friend who, he, uh, it's like it's his main, main parami, his main beauty in the world is his generosity. And in a, in a, in a, he's not trying to be humble or trying to be grandiose. He just keeps finding ways because it makes him happy. It makes him happy, releases his grip leads to more faith and confidence that actually it works, in this case it works to be generous, leads to more happiness, leads onward. And it's beautiful. In and of itself, it's beautiful. It lets his hands empty out. The faith deepens. The mindfulness deepens what he wants to attend to. He wants to attend to generosity. The samadhi deepens because there's an ease and a grounding in that. We're living, he's living in harmony with the fact that we're all connected. It merges in the deathless. Mindfulness. It's not an object, is it? It's a mode of operating. It's like an operating system. Cultivate this. You are cultivating this. Keep going with it. Developing it. Maintaining it. It has to be married, as I said, with discernment. What we are attending to and how we are attending. The discernment, understanding cause and effect here is knowing that what we say and what we do and what we think has an effect. And knowing what we don't say and what we don't do and what we don't think has an effect. It all has an effect. That's the world of cause and effect. How to handle this faculty of attention, have it coupled with wisdom so that the attention becomes agile, malleable, fluid, balanced, not captured by an object. This is where freedom is uh, cultivated and seen and practiced. We can see that for ourselves when you're less entranced by what arises. I've been on many meditation retreats sitting with my practice and only in retrospect have I seen where I've gotten entranced by what's arising, either the difficult thing or the lovely thing. Gotten, um, yeah, in a way starting to believe it as real. As the attention gets more agile, we can take our hands off Leave ourselves alone 
more and more. Or when we pick something up, we can do it knowing that that's what we're doing. Right? That's the difference, where there's wisdom present or not. If I pick up an object internally, mind, state, thought, feeling, sensation, whatever it is, am I picking it up in a way that's compelling or is there freedom? Can I also put it down again? Can I pick it up and can I put it down? The attention, the mindfulness becomes more malleable, more flexible, less bounded, less bonded, less captured. Mindfulness is really the bearing something in mind, knowing it, knowing what it is and how it is. Bearing it in mind again and again and again. Bearing it in mind. What, are, what is it that I'm bearing in mind? And can I widen and include more and more of the mandala of my experience that I'm not particularly captivated or captured by one thing unless I'm turning to an object through wisdom and not being compelled. So the samadhi, the next faculty, is not about bonding to an object. Right? Samadhi is not, right, I've got to hold down this breath in order to get samadhi. We've all tried that, I'm sure. And we usually have to learn by doing it, most of us. Right, if I hold down this breath, I'll get samadhi. We don't get samadhi. (laughs) We don't get it. Samadhi comes together through careful, steady attending. Through mindfulness, actually. There is a kind of concentration where you're holding down an object. But here's where the wisdom fits in. Let me give you a sentence. Feel the quality of this. Right, I've got to hold down that breath so that I can get samadhi. Can you feel the quality of it? You can feel the tightness, the rigidity, the agenda, the pressure, the impulsiveness, the restlessness. Can we take our hands off? that and see that samadhi comes together through what? How does samadhi come together? It's a lovely way of looking at what we're doing when we're training in samadhi that it's actually a cultivation and a training in the refinement of virtue. You know, we normally think of ethics and virtue as some sort of category. But the way that you attend to your breath, the way that you attend to your body, the way that you're mindful of that sensation of the breath, and the way the samadhi comes together can be a refinement in the virtue of what is beautiful, what is good, what is wholesome. That if I'm harsh with my breath, harsh with myself, manipulative with my breath in a controlling way. This is what we're cultivating. This is what we're cultivating for our meditation and this is what we're cultivating for our life. 
if I can cultivate the samadhi through bearing the body breathing in mind with gentleness, with patience, with tuning into that which is enjoyable and lovely and uplifting. That right there and then, we're practicing not just for the beauty and the basis that it gives us, but for the virtue to be refined. That if I handle my breath and body in this way, I can handle the teacups in this way, and my cat in this way, maybe my mother in this way, right? That we don't want to practice in a way that is only for this arena. Practice in a way with faculties that are going to be of service in the arena of our entire life. And what will those things be? The gentleness, the metta, the patience, the clarity, the persistence, the perseverance, all of these beautiful things. And you can see it with samadhi, can't you? All of you have been around the block probably enough times to see that we may, for a little while, get that samadhi and we might even feel like we've got it, right? We pin that breath down and woof, nothing else is bothering me, right? But this is not sustainable. We're also cultivating sustainability, Beautiful, true, and lovely sustainability. Because real, or as the samadhi gets more purified and clarified from grasping, it is something sustainable. Something that um, deepens of its own. It's set in motion and deepens of its own. So all these factors working together Right, we can't create wise samadhi because you remember the Buddha called it sama samadhi. It's not just samadhi; it's sama samadhi, right samadhi, just the right. You know how that word is used in the tradition? It's just right, like the porridge in the Three Bears story. You know, when it's just right, it's not too hot, it's not too cold, not too lumpy, not too runny. It's just right, the samadhi. Right, that's only knowable to us through practice, through seeing cause and effect of right view. We practice samadhi and it's really lumpy. And that's okay. But we keep going. We smooth it out. We deepen. We breathe out. Soothing and smoothing. Right? Or it's too tight. It's over-energized. It's got a rigidity to it and we can feel a kind of brittle shell around us. If anyone disturbs my samadhi, they're going to get it. Right? Or it's under-energized. You can see how it fits with the energy faculty, the effort faculty. It can be under-energized. Right? It's a little bit floppy or sloppy. Right? And we don't get it right. We can't control that. But we can keep feeding in the mindfulness, the wisdom. Oh yeah, look what happens when I breathe like this. This happens. Or when I breathe with my body with this kind of mind state, I get all rigid and uptight. Okay, that's not very sustainable. That doesn't lead onward. So we get to practice and experiment. And there's a kind of humility in that. Because right there and then, we're practicing deathlessness. We can't 
grasp the samadhi in our hands and have it for ourselves. It also becomes something beautiful and sustaining as the hands open with these other factors together, right? The mindfulness, the clear seeing, the effort. And as we do that, the faith deepens, right? It's like, oh yeah, look, it works. If you practice like this, this arises, it works. So let's lean on these faculties, cultivate them, deepen them. One teacher calls them the motor for awakening. It's like they get together and the motor starts to purr. And in the beginning it can sometimes feel like, oh, my faith's a little bit weak or my mindfulness has got a long way to go or my, oh, I haven't got any samadhi. But we keep practicing. We go through more and more and see actually what I can rely on is dharma in the deepest sense of dharma. that as the qualities start to deepen, they become like a motor, right? Like a little engine for, the, for awakening and things can become... Uh, the, the gap between putting in the effort and seeing the result can close. And we can see that this leads to more and more wakefulness. So the Buddha used this term, deathless. It's very evocative, isn't it? Deathless. Ha. No more, no more getting on the treadmill with my mind, being taken for a ride with my mind. What a blessed relief. No more being taken for a ride by my mind because when I, when I am, where does it lead? I get dumped off that ride at some point because it was a ride. The lovely, the terrible, believing I was this or that, should have been one of them, wasn't one of these, need to be one of those, need to be like that. Endless, endless taking birth and spinning. Deathlessness, letting the hands open with clarity, with faith, with mindfulness, discernment, perseverance. Let's know for ourselves how this merges in the deathless. The Buddha says, those who are heedful don't die. Those who are mindful, those who are mindful don't die. Those who are not mindful are like they're already dead. Why? Because when we're not here with discernment, we're really being run by our programs. right? And we might have some nice programs, and we've also probably all got our fair share of dodgy programs. Right? But we're run by the programs, like a fish, like a dead fish, just being flopped around by the currents. Whatever currents happen in the sea, we're just flopped, kind of pushed around by them. 
those who are heedful don't die, that we're not bound to keep taking a ride with our mind. The reflex of grasping. Can you sense it when it happens? <laughs> we can get more refined with that, can't we? You can feel yourself start to take hold of something. Like, the whole system contracts around a thought or a feeling or an idea or something we've seen. Or The reflex of grasping always leads to death. And we could say it another way, that out of fear sometimes, out of fear, we want to take hold of something to lean on, don't we? It's really understandable. It's so human. And our heart, as our heart sees that process, we can have compassion with ourselves. Yeah, look, there it is again. I want to believe I'm good. Or I want to refute that I'm, I'm not bad. I want to defend myself. I want to have one of these. I want this person to love me. I don't want that person to hate me. It's not in our control. Taking our hands off sends us or lets us experience life rather than a series of events of birth and death, of beginning and ending. Yes, there's a conventional truth to beginnings and endings, of course. It can be more the transition, that we're in transition, that this journey is leading onward. Experiences, events, moment to moment, practice, being here, being out there, it's a series of transitions, transitioning from one moment to the next. the faith to hang in there, the mindfulness and discernment to see what is the true and the beautiful and the skillful. And that ground of samadhi that deepens as our capacity to take in more of life, to let those things arise in us that we haven't been able yet to see and tolerate, that have been fragmented and pushed away, can come into the fold because they're not threatening anymore. They belong to the world of birth and death. And as the spiritual faculties wrap their arms around all these phenomena, this merges in the deathless. I'll finish with this um, poem, from another Mary Oliver poem. I know, Jan, I read one yesterday. And you can see it on both levels where the, of the physical death, but of where really seeing that process, there's a, another way of seeing it entirely. And also moment to moment. It's called White Owl flies into and out of the field. Coming down out of the freezing sky with its depths of light like an angel or a Buddha with wings, it was beautiful and accurate, 
striking the snow and whatever was there with a force that left the imprint of the tips of its wings, five feet apart and the grabbing thrust of its feet, and the indentation of what had been running through the white valleys of the snow. And then it rose gracefully and flew back to the frozen marshes to lurk there like a little lighthouse in the blue shadow. So I thought, maybe death isn't darkness after all, but so much light wrapping itself around us as soft as feathers that we are instantly weary of looking and looking and shut our eyes, not without amazement, and let ourselves be carried as through the translucence of Mika to the river that is without the least dapple or shadow, that is nothing but light scolding, aortal light in which we are washed and washed out of our bones. That is nothing but light scolding, aortal light in which we are washed and washed out of our bones. And and so the metaphor, really, of these five spiritual faculties, five indriyas coming together, that they're all a spectrum, that when they're balanced, developed, and come together, merge in the deathless in the same way that all the colors of light in the light spectrum, when they merge together, what do they leave? I don't know what you call it when they all those colors merge together. Do you call it it's like invisible light? white light, when all those colors of the spectrum merge together. Isn't that incredible? They look like really distinct things. And yet, when come together, it merges into something rather unexpected. So let's realize this for ourselves. Okay, let's sit together for a minute.
<clears throat> I wish you uh, all the blessing, that you're available to receive all the blessings of the practice that you've done up until now in these last days of your retreat. And thank, thank you for your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.